after the lockdown, what comes next? Do we go back to what we had before? Do we find our way to a new normal? And will we discover skills and ways of living that we never knew we had? Welcome to a very special edition of Tomorrow Comes Today, the thought leadership podcast from St. James's Place. Here on a virtual sofa under lockdown conditions, I'll be joined as ever by Rob Gardner, Director of Investment at St. James's Place. And we'll be hearing from some very special guests whose talents and skills and fame lie in taking people out of the initial crisis response and helping them to build a better future. Rob, welcome. The new normal. What a topic. Yeah, well, hi, Matt. Great, great to be, be chatting again. One of my reflections is uh, when it comes to habits, it takes 21 days to form a habit, a good habit or a bad habit. And so if I just think about good habits and bad habits, in week one, I, I sort of developed an, a really bad habit around ginger nut biscuits and chocolate digestives. <laughs> um, and my wife kindly pointed out that that's a habit that I should probably knock knock on their knock on their head. Yeah. So so that's one. But but the other one is that suddenly stuff's possible uh, that you couldn't do before. So you know I, my I joined a Pilates class on my iPad. I'm at home. The person running the class is at home, and actually you realize it's a lot easier than having to go to a, a class. And and actually I even joined a kind of a a, a tennis fitness class. Uh, again with the iPad and, you know, obviously you're not playing tennis, but you're, you're exercising and practicing your strokes. So I think there's something really interesting about the fact that we've been locked down for three weeks and, you know, it'll probably be another three weeks, a whole load of habits will be broken and a whole load of habits will be formed. And I think we'll all be forced to kind of go when we do come back, what, what new habits do we want to develop? The other thing is that we've all been forced uh, to do distributed working it's almost like can you imagine if if you said everyone had to put on roller skates and roller skates to work everyone say well i can't do it and then if the government had mandated and said okay from right now on if you leave your house you've got to put on roller skates and you're going to roller skate to work roller skate to supermarket and then we'd all basically you learn and adapt and do it and that's what we've all been forced to do you know the idea of doing a pub quiz on zoom like four (laughs) weeks ago you would have gone, that's ridiculous. The idea of having a tennis lesson with 12 other people on Zoom, that's ridiculous. And yet this has become the new normal. And, and you know, as 21 days rolls past, that becomes how we do stuff. So it, I, I find it fascinating. Something like this. I mean, we can think back to the Spanish flu, but there's never been something like this where we have seen data being produced in real time about everything from the effectiveness of how people are working to self-reporting possible symptoms on social media and so on. So I do think you're right. I mean, there is going to be a lot to analyse and a lot to look at, and some of it will probably be irrefutable. I mean, but it affects everything, doesn't it? It even affects the shapes of cities and the dominance of capitals and the housing market because of that. I mean, do people need to move to a certain place to find work in that place and so on and so forth? It feels like it's almost a very, very refreshing opportunity and for those people listening at home too, to look at the fundamentals of what they've got. So absolutely. I mean, you know, one, one of the things when you have a fire, a forest fire, you have what's called a fire break. So to stop the fire spreading, you, ha- you, you actually go ahead and burn a fire and build a gap. And it's almost like the entire planet has had a fire break on everything that we do, every every assumption about going to work or convening together in one place, 
And as you say, that has massive implications for the commercial property market, the office property market, the residential. Why, why would I live in a small apartment in London or New York before you had to live there because most of the good jobs were there? That's why people made that trade-off between cost of rent, tiny living space, and job opportunity. Or if all of a sudden, you know, you can do your job, but actually you could be living in Bali and surfing every morning, it kind of changes your utility function around around life. I know, you know, me and my teams are enjoying it. It's it's difficult sort of doing homeschooling and all the work, but suddenly, you know, a lot of time is spent on commuting. You know, if you're if you're cutting out two, three hours a day of commuting, what imagine what you can do with that commuting time. It's a sense, I suppose, of, of what uh, scientists would call creative destruction. You know, the idea that after after each forest fire, as you say, or each kind of uh, massive event, certain things will will be levelled and that will allow certain other things to suddenly grow. Our guests on today's show are very much all about that. They are the people that we call in when we've got a, a, a crisis or something goes wrong to help us not just to get out of that or to, to shut down, but to evolve and become something better afterwards. We've got Lani Carstens, an executive trainer and mentor who helps people to take those crossroads and turn them into opportunities for growth. We've got Phil Hall, for a long time a Fleet Street editor, editor of The Mail, who went into crisis communications. He's the guy that companies call in when they've got a problem that they can't get out of. And he helps them to become more open, more collaborative, and ultimately stronger as a result of whatever that crisis was. And we'll have Michael Stapleton, who spent a long time investing in Asia, and he's seen in real time the current crisis unfolding and can help share his experience on what comes next and how that can present us with opportunities. So our first guest is Phil Hall. I talked to Phil, again, under lockdown at his home in Brighton. We are a crisis comms advisor. So, you know, this is about communication. And the first thing you need to work out is whether you actually think your your particular crisis is going to make the news. Is it going to be in the newspapers? Is it going to be on television? Is it going to be on radio? Because if you're off radar and that's not going to happen, then it, it really you've got more time to to play with. Clearly, if you're in in the public eye and you're a public company, and potentially it's happening very quickly to you, then you do have to be very quick. What we call the golden hour. You have to make a decision quickly about what your position is. But I think. Most importantly, don't panic. You know, the first rule of any crisis management is put a perspective on it. And it's hard to put a perspective on something when you can't predict down the line what's going to happen. But, but you can say, well, actually, put a perspective on this. You're not going to make the papers. They're all full of health news at the moment. So, so let's calm down and let's think very rationally about what we're going to do and what we're going to say, because the chances are you're going to be, you're going to be missed. Your problem is going to be insignificant compared to what's going on in the world. You've obviously been doing this for a while. And have you noticed over the years that this sense of needing to do things immediately and needing to have an immediate soundbite and an immediate response. And now, of course, there's, you know, everybody expects a tweet within the first 20 minutes. Is this something that's panicked people, do you think? It does. It does panic people because they see social media often reacted against their businesses. So very often now the crisis starts on social media. But in my experience, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get picked up by the national press. doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be noticed. You know, you've got... People need to make calm decisions. And I think we say first and foremost, comms is very important, but it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is making the right decisions for your business and letting comms react to that. Don't let comms lead your business because, you know, spinning is is not an option when you're in crisis. You've got to be very careful. You've got to be transparent. 
choose your words, you know, measure in a measured way and not see yourself reacting to what social media pressure is. I see all the time clients coming on to me saying, I've just read on Twitter, I've just read on Instagram, this is happening, this is happening. And I say, don't worry about it. You know, it's something that very often is being shared with small groups of people. You don't have to panic. Let's make sure we've got exactly the truth and let's have a look at exactly what the circumstances are. Because we used to have an old saying in newspapers, which was, it's never the crime that brings you down. It's always the cover-up. So <laughs> making, a, making a mistake by putting out something that's not true can often come back to haunt you. Better off to say nothing and get the full story properly sourced, accurate, and then you can be you know, decisive about what you're going to say. Let's think ourselves from that point of view into the minds of, of people who are managing the public's perceptions of the crisis at the moment and, and are having to communicate in what seemed to be a credible yet very timely way. Is it hard to, to pinpoint almost the limits of a, of a crisis comm situation? It is. It absolutely is very difficult because very often you don't know all the facts. You think you do. And then something left field will come, come and blindside you. And you look at somebody like Boris Johnson at the moment, for instance, very difficult situation he's in. He's been criticised constantly. I think what one of the greatest weapons in crisis management is humility, showing humility. And I think he's shown humility in the way he's presented himself, the way he's conducted the press conferences on a personal basis with the journalists. He's got relationships with them. They know him. You know, they're not trying to kill him, really. They're understanding that he's in a very difficult situation. You know, showing humility, showing that you're being as honest as you possibly can be in the circumstances. He can't know all the details because he hasn't got all the tests. He hasn't got all the equipment. But by showing that he's listening to the scientific evidence and medical evidence and a proper substance behind making the decisions and showing humility, sort of effectively putting his hands up and saying, I don't have all the answers. I'm just making the best decisions I can with the best information I've got goes a long way with the public and it shows that you know people i think people look at him at the moment as somebody who's not making all the right decisions but he's an honest broker he's doing the best he can even while i've been working as a as a journalist and as a as a, as a broadcaster there's been a, a, a kind of move towards everything must be transparent and if it's not there's a reason that that's wrong and there's a reason that we're not very good i think at coping with uncertainty like we, we may not know how this is going to pan out over next year i think there's some sort of cover-up going on there's something suspicious because you won't tell them everything but you know let's you know let's say I, I don't represent wembley stadium but let's say we're representing wembley stadium there's a big england match coming on you know the euros were coming up and constantly journalists are bringing it up and saying what's happening has it been cancelled is it and, you know, they because they don't haven't made the decision yet or they're, they're discussing the various options open to them, they think it's a cover-up because they're not telling them the answer to their questions. Well, it isn't. Very often it's a timing thing. People have got to think about the bigger picture. They've got to think of the impact it's going to have on their staff, on, you know, future matches, future ticket sales. Do they return the tickets or do they actually, you know, keep them for the next game? Because very often that particular business is running based on the money that they've taken in on those tickets. It's very difficult. It's not, you know, it's not black and white. And I think that that's what journalists very often don't understand. I was reading today about the COVID thing. It's going to be tremendously helpful in a way. It's going to be the first global pandemic that we can not only track in retrospect by looking at how many people uh, were ill and died as we did from hospital cases like with the Spanish flu, but we can actually see in real time people going, oh no, I've got a sniffly nose. And all that will be sucked up and we can actually chart the, the way that information spreads in advance and so on and so forth. So it'll be very, very helpful. Do you have to track, as it were, the other kind of viral? 
do you in your business now have sort of uh, people out there looking at who's talking at what? And do you have sort of dashboards of data to, yes. to make sure your stories are getting out there or not getting out there? Absolutely. We have a we have a software and equipment that can tell us when somebody's tweeted about a client in China, you know, anywhere in the world. So if we've got a big client and I'm not saying this has happened to them at all. It hasn't. But Bista Village, for instance, one of our clients, you know, if somebody tweets something about them in Italy or France, we can pick it up immediately and know exactly what's being said and then advise them on whether this this Twitter or Instagram is worth uh, responding to or not because often there are you know there there are people just throwing information often made up we have to very often fish through that and find out what is the right information and what isn't and what will have a real impact on clients and advise them in advance of it breaking into the national media so have you got with with that knowledge have you got any advice to people in life if they're suddenly faced with a situation and it might be this one but it might equally be the financial crash in 2008 it might be a, a, a sudden scandal or a rumor in their business my father used to say sleep on it you know whenever there was and i, and I that is, sounds like crazy advice because most prs will say golden hour you got to move really quickly but very, very often I will say to clients, sleep on it because they'll come on in a in a state of great distress. It may be because there's an employment issue in their company and they think it's going to break in the news, it's going to destroy the company. And, you know, I can say they won't destroy the company. You know, this is an, it's an isolated situation that we need to deal with in a very transparent and proper way. But let's just take a, you know, take a step back and think about it. Now, clearly, if if you know, if you're an oil rig and it's caught fire, you can't sleep on it. But, you know, an awful lot of situations, people are really, really panicking. And they're just by slowing down and thinking about it and taking time. And often, you know, you'll find the client on the next day in a completely different mindset. They've had time to think about it a little bit. They've listened to their friends outside the business who said this isn't the biggest crisis in the world. And it just calms it down a little bit. So calming down is a big thing. I do think always don't cover up. Because it will it will be the cover up that brings you down. So, you know, the word sorry is still the most powerful word in the English language. I think humility is very very important, and also getting the right person, the right spokesman to handle your company. You know, we had a massive global um, uh, minerals firm who had a big meltdown, and they had a very 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 stern sort of uh, French uh, owner and. Um, he wanted to address the press and explain he was going to close a lot of the place down. And I said, you need somebody on the ground, you know, who's been there 26 years and can understand why this is being done because minerals are now cheaper in Brazil than they are in the UK. And you've got so you're picking the right person who can speak with some authority, but also with humility. So this is really interesting. The whole theme, in a way, that's coming out here is that we don't actually live in a, in a post-expert age. The expertise is valuable. Knowledge is going to be your friend when things yes. appear to be going wrong. And rely on that and then speak from that place of knowledge rather than just spinning or whatever. I think so, because you, you're, you're, what you said at the beginning of the interview was right. You know, 24-7 media can force people's hands. They, you know, they watch things opening up on Sky. I've got a particular client who often sees stuff on Sky and on social media and wants to react to it quickly. And I say over and over again, are you sure that what you're telling me is the full story? Let's check it out. You know, we may find that some of it is true. You know, because the initial reaction is it's all rubbish, it's not true, deny it. Actually, let's find out and really check the facts properly. And then we can go back to the journalist and we can say, look, you've got some of this wrong for a start. So let's correct the, the inaccuracies. And then we'll give you a statement based on the on the accurate information, not on, you know, maybe the, the hyperbole that they've created around a particular situation. Phil Hall there. 
Now, one of the things, having spoken to Phil, Sarah, our producer, said to me in the immediate debrief was, um, I would ask him what to do about a breakup. He sounds so reassuring that actually, you know, he's, it was almost the Tao of Phil. It, it sounds like the principles he's espousing there um, are those that would serve you equally well at a personal crossroads or when you weren't sure what to do about something or you were in a bit of emotional turmoil. What do you think, uh, Rob? How, how realistic is that and how, how general is, that, is, is the guidance that we were hearing about there? You know, things like be honest with yourself. Yeah, so look, I'm the, the, the thing that really resonated with me is sleep on it. And, and slow down. And, and you talked about it in in the beginning and writing notes. I, I was lucky actually last year I had I, I read a book uh, about sleep, uh, why we sleep, uh, and then I attended this this talk by an Oxford professor about sleep, and he talked about how sleep calms or or, or kind of controls our circadian rhythm. And the impact it has on the effectiveness on drugs, the impact it has on our health, and the impact it has on problem solving. So they did this study where they gave some people a problem and then they tried to solve it immediately, or they gave some people a problem and they all slept on it and then did the problem literally 24 hours later. And you know the difference in the kind of groups who kind of solved the problem with a night's sleep versus who didn't was you know dramatic. We also know the science says sleep on sleep on it really really makes a difference. It's something that I try and do with my team. I try and really wrestle with the topic, and then go, okay, Matt, let's let's sleep on it and let's see how we feel about it in the morning. I think the other thing that really struck me was this kind of concept of of humility, and I think it feeds into the unknown. That the danger is you want to be seen to be a leader, and I know what's going on, and it's how do you strike this balance between. It's unknown. I don't know what will happen. There's some stuff that we do know, and there's, you know, there's the 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 old Donald Rumsfeld and the known knowns and the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. And on the one hand, as a leader, I think it's being authentic and humble, but at the same time, going Matt, you know, kind of metaphorically, I'm holding your hand and go, Matt, we've got this. We'll get through this. And how, as a leader, or how do leaders kind of walk this kind of world of vulnerable leadership but at the same time a, a kind of sense of confidence and yeah you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the Royal Marines and one of the things that I like about them is they have this kind of the Royal the commando mindset the commando values uh, and the commando ethos and the commando mindset is be the first to understand now that doesn't mean rush into it and I think that's what Phil was saying you know understand the facts don't panic, don't rush out to get a tweet or don't rush out to respond to Sky News. The second thing is they've got lots of values, but their values are, two of their values are really humility, which is what Phil talks about, and then integrity. But what they mean by integrity is tell the truth. So, you know, me saying what we don't want is politicians, and this is, I suppose, what kind of has irked us is some politicians around the world a few weeks ago were saying, oh, this is all fine. It's just the common cold and all the rest. That sort of untruth is is is, is unhelpful. And then the third thing about the Royal Marines is their kind of ethos of courage and bravery and, and never giving up. And and I think to, to me, Bravery is an interesting concept, and I know you talk about sort of crime and punishment and 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 telling a lie. But I, I like the the piece of Aristotle and his piece, the Magna Moralia, where he talks about to be brave. Then 
a man must neither must not either fear everything or nothing. And and I for me I think that captures the essence of where we are. We all need to be brave. Our leaders need to maybe be brave for us, but we need them to be humble and we need them to be truthful. Uh, so a lot a lot of what Phil had to say really resonated with me. Well, I'm going to throw another uh, definition of courage and, and bravery back to you. And it's one of my favourite formulations. And I think it's from the Hemingway novel, The Sun Also Rises. And somebody talks about uh, bravery or courage is grace under pressure. And I think there's something very, there's always been something very seductive to me about the idea of grace under pressure that you, you may be, it may be that because we now have, for example, access to all that information that we know what's happening to share prices and currency fluctuations in real time as it happens, that we can very much feel, right, I've got to be in the moment. My goodness, this is happening. It's going up and down. And what about the idea of stepping back, looking calmly, taking, as as you say, you know, the OODA loop, understanding things, taking a, 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 a proper coherent view and then acting decisively. And it feels like, as Phil was saying, whether it was sky rolling news, you know, pressuring everybody when something goes wrong to have a quote immediately at the top of the hour rather than um, for the next morning's papers even. Uh, that It feels like this idea of grace under pressure and of, of taking the heat out of the moment could actually have possibly prevented politicians from blurting out as many things as they did. Yeah, and I think look, to maybe, you know, lighten the mood on this uh, podcast a little bit <laughs> and just talk about sport, when you talked about sort of grace under pressure, Roger Federer immediately came yeah. to mind. I mean, yeah, obviously sport, Wimbledon final, it, it, you know, it's not the, the, the kind of the situation we're in right now, but obviously it's huge pressure, right, to win seven back-to-back -back matches against the best tennis players in the world with the media and all the rest. And Roger Federer is just someone who just oozes grace under pressure Absolutely. and what we do know is the best tennis players in the world between points are able to slow their heart rate right down so they use their breathing to calm themselves down and be in the moment for that next point regardless of whether they just hit it into the net or hit it hit it long and i suppose that's kind of what phil's saying to his clients which is just kind of pause for breath yeah. Breathe in, take a moment. You know, I've, I've been kind of meditating on and off for ages, but for the last three weeks, that has been my go-to, the Calm app uh, on my phone, uh, yeah. which is just, you know, let me just check in. And I do find the breathing and the calm talking does kind of change my perspective. And, and I, yeah, I just think that's a really important thing to do, to kind of be brave, to be humble. Uh, and to kind of get yourself in the right frame of mind to make the best possible decisions you can do. That's all you can do is make the best possible decisions you can. You talked a second ago about figuratively you're going to take your hand, you can get through this and so on. And Phil talks about, um, I can be the sensible friend. And it feels, does it not, that sometimes actually, even if it is a comms consultant like that, or even if it's just an app, actually, that what that's doing is playing back to you a version of, of, of yourself where you don't need to be so hurried. And I think somehow that idea, and I know this is something that St. James's Place is very committed to, that idea of having somebody there who can figuratively hold your hand and that, that you can talk to and bounce things off and they can start to take in what your concerns are, what your thoughts, what your hopes, 
And then perhaps it will be you that's got the answer already, but they can certainly help you with that. You're absolutely right. We all need an advisor, an honest friend. And this is the really interesting thing for me is that lots of people who work in finance, you know, traders or fund managers need a good financial advisor because actually a really good financial advisor is just as much a kind of psychologist, money psychotherapist, dealing with that fear and anxiety. You know, I was very lucky about two weeks ago, I was doing a webinar with with Carl Richards, who, who, who is a kind of crossover between sort of financial planning coach, uh, but also kind of the behavioral finance aspect uh, of, of this. And he, and he talks about the need to, to kind of fill the void and to meet people with that anxiety uh, and to kind of reconnect people with why were you doing this, Matt? Why were you, well, you were saving your money for your pension and you're still a young guy and you still got a long time to go. And we know that when markets have fallen this much before they recover, things will pass. And that reframing, having someone reframe for us is so important. And and I think, you know, right now, picking up the phone and just asking, actually, that's, you know, one of the things we talk about at St. James's Place is just ask, you know, if you're worried about your pension, should you be putting more money into your pension? Uh these are exactly the questions that you should be asking. And so on the one hand, you know, I've had friends call up and say, should I still keep investing my pension? I'm like, of course you should, you get tax relief on all of this. And, you know, your pension's a long, long time away. And, you know, as long as you're putting it in a diversified set of investments rather than in a single security, then, then this will do what it's meant to do. It's meant to protect you against living a long, time and inflation and not running out of money. And actually, the biggest risk is just leaving it in the bank. The flip side is, you know, one of my colleagues was saying, well, look, you know, I was hoping to buy a home. And, uh, you know, should I still be doing that? And I said, absolutely. But you know, you should be putting it in cash because you don't know what might happen to the market. I don't know what will happen to the markets in the next six months, or, or 12 months. So, Having someone who can provide you that kind of context of time horizon, but also just, again, kind of hold your hand and go, look, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to be uncertain, but we've been here before. And, you know, let me remind you that economies have been through this and, you know, we'll come, the economy will come through and it will be different to what it was before. But my job as your advisor is to kind of keep you on track with your long-term plan. What a great segue into the next interview which is a meeting between myself and Michael Stapleton. Now, he works for First State Investments. He's based in Australia, but manages Asia, Singapore, and has watched history unfold in China over the past few weeks. And he can tell us a little about what to expect. What you see with markets is markets having, you know, days where a market or global markets will fall between sort of 5 and 10%. And then a couple of days later, you know, they're, they're up the other way, the same amount. And um, so we've seen extreme volatility both ways. And what that is, you know, a sign of is that people just don't know. You know, people very clearly, this is such an unprecedented event, um, you know, trying to contain this virus that people have no idea. And you get massive swings in, in, in markets. And, you know, we, we would say that this is absolutely the environment where you absolutely have to be focused on the long term. You absolutely have to be focused on quality businesses, quality franchises, businesses that are, you know, not too overgeared, a cautious level of debt and businesses that, you know, when you sort of look through on a sort of five to 10 year view, 
are going to be okay. Um, in fact, probably more than okay. So, you know, this is the sort of time I think, you know, more than ever where you need to be sort of focused on um, the long-term and quality businesses because there's going to be huge um, volatility. Nobody really knows. No one can say with certainty how this is going to end or when it's going to end. Um, and, you know, that sort of, as you say, eye on the long term and almost sort of disregard the sort of noise of the day to day and the volatility of the day to day, um, we think is we think is really critical in this sort of environment. And I think the sort of unique thing about this crisis is that if you think about the crises that have gone on historically, like the financial crisis or the technology crash, um, you know, in, in both those instances, we are we were dealing with a sort of a financial markets issue that was um, focused on, you know, some sectors in particular. Well, what we have here is a, a health crisis. Now, this is a health crisis that's driving a financial crisis. And the financial crisis is across the board. No sector has really been spared. Uh, no country has been spared. The selling has been quite panic driven and quite indiscriminate and there will of course be fantastic opportunities uh, within that to sort of the types of franchises that I've been talking about but it's the linkage between a sort of a health crisis and a, and a financial crisis which makes this something in financial markets that nothing we've, we've seen before. There's always a sense in or mostly there's a sense during these crises and during financial crises that you can go somewhere else because somewhere else is safer you know, let's let's let, that's fine because Asia's doing well, or the US dollar is is always going to be very strong, and that's cool. Now, obviously, to an extent, some of those things are still true, but it seems that there is no. If everybody wants to sell, there's no safe place to go and buy at the moment. Is that is that something that's panicking a lot of people? And and as you say, is the cure for that just staying true to your fundamentals and your longer term strategic thinking? I think the short-term issue is that, again, what makes this crisis different is if you think about the sort of financial crisis, people still went to work, they went to the shops, they went to dinner, you know, the aggregate demand rolled on. So government policy could pump prime economies and, and you know, grow their way through the sort of trouble. In this instance, we've got a complete stall on aggregate demand globally with people just staying at home, not spending. So you've got this sort of financial crisis that's playing out but government policy really can't do much to keep the show on the road because people need to stay at home. So that's, again, another very unique um, aspect to this crisis, which will go on for you know however long, nobody knows. But again, the companies that are in our portfolio are companies that have been around for a very long time. They're low-geared businesses. Um, their businesses have a unique franchise, a unique moat around them. And you know that they've got the sort of wherewithal to be still around in sort of 5, 10, 20 years. And it's those businesses as, you know, competitors probably fall by the wayside around them is absolutely the types of franchises that you want to be invested in. But you have to look through this short-term volatility and you have to sort of think, you know, what that business is going to be like in sort of five five years' time as you sort of continue to sort of grow through this. It's really only those franchises that are going to be able to see things off. To make sure you are focused on those businesses, and I think sort of SJP does this quite well, is to look for managers that are typically um, define risk as losing money, not perform, underperforming an index, and to sort of, you know, be constantly worried about the sort of permanent loss of capital. I'm sure there'll be many, um, you know, investors around there that are going to permanently lose capital um, through this crisis. Um, the most important thing is to be invested in franchises in the first place where, sure, the share price might fall, and in some cases fall a lot but the loss of capital won't be permanent. The franchise won't be permanently impaired. Um, they're the types of things that we're looking at, the types of businesses that we're looking at to get us through this. 
there'll be people sitting at home and they'll, they'll be listening to this and just feeling potentially slightly lost your you know and and like we all are i suppose you know the, the idea of uh, the idea of going out for a coffee with a mate is is now impossibly uh, distant and theoretical are there any are there any i suppose tips for staying for staying focused and for staying sane uh, that you you could offer people i suppose just uh, i guess informally yeah i think you have to take a lot of confidence particularly looking at china that um, the world is going to get through this. We're going to get through it. And, um, you know, from from an investment sense, you know, we're definitely going to get through it. Um, I think one of the sort of worrying things at the moment is that people worry about is the uncertainty about how long um, this is going to go on for. Um, you know, I think sort of politicians in the, in the country where I spend the majority of my time, which is Hong Kong and Australia, you know, very much sort of preparing people for sort of three to six months of this this type of, um, you know, environment that we're living in. So I think sort of, you know, just sort of trying to sort of get your head around the fact now that that's what you're going to be dealing with and, you know, personally come up with some personal strategies to sort of help yourself get through that. I've, the, the biggest challenge we're having with people, um, you know, work sense is working from home. You know, it's something that on on the other side of it sounded maybe like quite a fun thing to do, but you get a couple of days into it and you've got, you know, kids all for you and, you know, fighting with your spouse and all that sort of stuff. You know, it's a hell of a big challenge actually. And that's, you know, when we spent the sort of first week um, really focused on, you know, okay, we've got to get everyone from home. There was this big focus on how we could sort of do that in a technology sense. And now we've got them all home and the business is running fine. Um, it's all around, you know, how are we going to get our staff through this? Because actually this is going to be really hard. It could go on for a lot longer than people expect. So sort of really thinking about the sort of mental health aspects of what the next three to six months is going to be like um, for those employees that have staff i'm sure that's sort of right up top of mind but you know i think we're two weeks into this and even just after two weeks we can tell that this is going to be a real strain on a lot of people um so you know look after yourself make sure you sort of think about mental health in that sort of broad sense and you know i guess try and find some positives on it and what i'm trying to take from it is you know uh, you know monday friday get to see the kids much and, uh, you know, from my perspective, from a family perspective, you know, okay, let's try and make the most of this and uh, get to know each other a little bit better. Michael Stapleton there, talking to us from Melbourne. One thing then I, th- I suppose that, that I want to pick up on from, from Michael's take on things is how we get from that transition that he touched upon. Um, our first priority was getting everybody back at home. Our first priority was making sure they were there uh, and and then we we're going to move on from that. Um, I mean, you personally, you, I know you you're we're doing this from our homes. How are you finding it? Yeah, look, I, I suppose you know it's important to be clear that I you know I have multiple roles. I'm a you know I'm a husband, I'm a dad, uh, and I'm I'm a business leader, and and juggling those three is really really hard. You know, uh, all of those parties have different levels of anxiety, fear, concerns. And trying to sort of be there for all of them, and you know, what I don't want to do is be there for my my team and my staff, but then not be there for for, for my wife, uh, or, or or not not be there for for my kids. I think the second thing in the first week, uh, I was definitely cooking on adrenaline. The market volatility that that that, that Michael talked about was impacting me and my team. And you know, as you know, we're responsible for over a hundred billion pounds and. You know, lots and lots of fund managers like First State around the world. Uh, so juggling all of that and 
whilst trying to also do homeschooling and and be there for my wife. And I, I kind of very quickly started this dangerous uh, addiction to two things: chocolate digestives and ginger nut biscuits. And you know, I'm not I'm not I'm not like a biscuit kind of guy. And then in the space of a week, I kind of suddenly was that. So uh, yeah. my wife quickly pointed this out, uh, which was was good. And I've I mentioned earlier, try to get into the routine of doing the calm app every morning. Uh, I try and do some Pilates uh, every morning uh, and I try and go and go for a walk and get, get some fresh air, but it's tough. But I do agree with Michael. I think, you know, for me, when they announced the three week lockdown, I mentally, I, you know, I assumed it wasn't, it was unlikely we were going to be coming back to school and back to work after three weeks. And so how do we, how do we ensure our homes, ourselves, and our our, our colleagues are, are well looked after? You know, you know. Actually, you know, my new colleagues are my wife and my two daughters. So, you know, how, how I you know inter interface with them at home is 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 really really important. And I, and I hadn't really thought of it that way. Is there a sense in which I suppose if we're talking about what comes after this this uh, the, the initial crisis response and 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 situations reaching plateaus and the new normal and so on. Is there a sense in which we can see some of what's been going on, some of this volatility or perhaps even some of the economic activity around businesses that either are or aren't equipped as a, as a creative destruction for value? Uh, look, absolutely. We know that actually post-World War II was when we saw a huge boom in economic growth in America. And actually that kind of really set America to be off to the, be the superpower that it is I think the reason why Charlie Munger said the Chinese companies are now stronger than US ones is that you know China is well positioned around all the new emerging technologies, artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, has an extremely well-educated workforce. It has a workforce or you know a, a group of citizens that are are, are extremely uh, compliant. And you know China's biggest issue right now is that actually it can get back up and running, but actually it's got no one to sell to. Or technology companies like Zoom, we've already seen do very well, and I expect we'll continue to do better. Likewise, with uh, Ocado, I think what it the, the bigger the bigger thing that this really drives home is that there will be much more focus on our health and and our well being. And I suppose linked to that is the health and well being of our planet. I mean, you know, some people might say that you know maybe the virus is the humans and not the virus. And to what extent, at a really macro level, is is this just sort of predator prey cycles just playing yeah. itself out and normalizing what has undoubtedly been a gross consumption of the earth this is fascinating i mean there's, there was some research i was reading yesterday about the uh, the seismology of <clears throat> of when there's uh, a, a dip in the market or the current uh, uh, covid-19 and coronavirus um, situation that actually when cities become more uh, silent that can now be detected uh, in Earth seismolo uh, seismology uh, centres far, far away. The fact that we've now got used to this kind of low-level constant rumbling and shaking uh, in the Earth below us caused by by us. And it, it made me think somehow of of some of the assumptions that we just have, some of the things we live with, as with, you know, I need to go into the office every day, I need to go to a physical place, because that's the way it is. And perhaps this moment of stillness that we're now having can help us find a way forward. Um, and there's one woman who knows more about that uh, than anybody else. It's Lani Carstens, who's my next interview and our next interview for this podcast. And she helps people to step outside themselves 
and leaders and business people to challenge themselves and the assumptions they're making and sometimes find a new way forward even when it feels like there isn't one. She's on the phone from Cape Town. For me, in, especially in a leadership position, is how do I make my decisions? What is the moral compass that, it, that guides me when I'm making decisions? Um, as a leader, we have to make tough decisions sometimes. We can't always be popular. Yeah. We've got to do the greatest good for the greatest number of people, preserving the greatest value, which means doing the right thing by the organization, which might not be right for everybody. And, and I think that's where I'm coming from, from the, the authenticity is how do you lead being true to yourself? And how do you balance the often paradoxical challenges of being vulnerable or showing vulnerability to an extent without being overly vulnerable, if you know what I mean. So saying, I am a leader, I am in control, I know what I'm doing, I've got this. And in fact, using this, this is the very real um, COVID-19 pandemic that we're all experiencing right now. I've borne witness to it in my company and in the organization and looking at my clients and people are responding so differently. Um, and that's also really, really interesting to, to anyone anyway, digressing slightly, but it, it, it does. And I think it's how do you, you know, lead with that integrity, with that moral compass and doing the right thing? Now, it's, it's all very easy. It seems all very easy for lead, people who say they're leaders when, let's say, the economy is going well or when the business is growing. Everybody looks like a good leader, don't they, at that point? And of course, when, th when things start going wrong, isn't it, that we have to perhaps manage a, some unexpected news or manage a decline, how easy is it for leaders, uh, for, for, for decision makers generally, to switch between those things, to suddenly realise that, that the thing that they got away with just uh, yeah. suddenly has to shift? Is that a hard thing for them to recognise? I think it is a hard thing for them to recognise. And I think, um, you know, just, just to sort of take a, a sort of a step back around what happens in a crisis. And by this, I'm talking about leaders, I'm talking about individuals, I'm talking about CEOs. Um, essentially, when somebody goes through a crisis, um, whether it's on, on a career level, a personal level, um, like this global pandemic, um, we, we have a very real felt sense on a somatic or physical level when we experience a, a crisis. And it's almost, ex it's felt in the body and in mm. the brain as a mini trauma. Um, and, and that is a fact. That's a brain-based neuroscientific fact that it, you experience it as a mini trauma. So what does that mean? Um, essentially, your basic internal brain and, brain and body-based response kicks in. So it, and it's not a carefully thought through thing. It's a response so, and we've all heard these terms, you either fight, you fright, you flight, or you freeze. And, yes. and that is true of leaders as well. So you're in a sort of a rapid fire, total body brain freeze. Um, and, and everybody responds differently. And you see leaders responding differently. And I think some of the, some of the, the learnings that I think can be taken from this is, A, what is the art of the opportunity? And how do we thrive and not merely survive through this? So I remember in the um, during the financial crisis of 2007 to 2010, roughly, you know, we had a credit crunch. Suddenly, all the money, all the flow of money stopped. Everybody suddenly went, right, we've got to sit on our war chest of money. If we've got any money, just stop. Nobody spend anything. And it feels a little bit like that now where the world has, has pretty much scrambled up a tree to get away from the scary thing <laughs> and, and hasn't necessarily thought about the next step yet or doesn't know what those steps are going to be. Mm. Are we seeing a moment of that visceral panic response when actually mm. now would be the time, I suppose, in leadership or, or, or personal terms to start thinking about the next step, the strategic? And how do we balance out the short term need to do something with the long term view? 
Absolutely. And I think the key word there for me is response. Um, you know, not how do we react because we all, you know, we, we need to move away from reacting to really and truly responding. Um, and I think the way that one chooses to respond to anything like this, um, and in every moment going forward actually is around emotional maturity or mindful conscious choice, which is actually at our disposal all of the time. Um, there's a wonderful writer, um, Dr. Martin Seligman, um, who, who talks a lot about, um, the science of happiness and, um, a positive psychology, which is, which is, um, something that I find really, really interesting is that when we make things personal, permanent, or pervasive, we're actually setting ourselves up for failure. You know, the coronavirus or any other crisis, um, it's not personal. You know what I mean? We, 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 it didn't happen to us. It's not a personal thing. It's also not permanent, you know, like any crisis or any pandemic, you know, in the world before us, it's not, it, is it going to pass um, as well eventually? Um, and although it feels so pervasive at the moment and the, the immediate reaction is to panic, um, is to say, well, how do we start co-creating a new normal for ourselves? Um, and what's life like, what's life going to look like after this? And, you know, we've had very real examples, you know, you know, in the, in, in business, um, in the office with our clients reacting in a rather panicked fashion. And we had a, a very real moment this week where the client reacted to, um, the situation of the lockdown, um, in quite a panicked way. And we thought, well, either we take that on or we say, how can we reframe this for the client and how can we find or sense um, or co-create the art of opportunity through this. And we actually did a little brainstorm. We came back to the client with a great idea that actually res resolved the situation for the clients. And I think that's where your true collaboration and your true partnership, um, both for yourselves, your colleagues, your your teammates, um, your clients, your greater community um, is, is has never been more prevalent. Do you find teaching people to potentially to compartmentalize or to to take a slightly longer view or, or or perhaps a helicopter view of things can help. I mean, do you ever talk to them about crises that other people have come through in the past? Absolutely. Um, but I think some of the things is, 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 is particularly in a time of crisis is you do need to take a long-term approach. But remember that when the crisis happens, you're in it immediately. Do you know what I mean? You, you're in it, you're feeling it. And I think the starting point for any crisis is to actually be in the moment in this, this sort of mindfulness approach as well is to actually really face the reality, sort of stare it down, stare down this brutal truth and try and make meaning of the mess. Um, do you know what I mean? So, you know, face the facts, um, look at the truth, try not to follow fake news. I mean, that's the other thing, you know, we, we see all of this and there's so much uh, panic that, is, that gets disseminated just through fake news. Try and understand what the reality is, you know, and try and avoid dramatization as well. Um, and I always try and talk to clients about, you know, what is, how can you be cautiously, realistically optimistic through this? So as we know, this is going to pass. How do we, you know, be present with the moment, be realistic in terms of what the expectations are of ourselves and of others, um, and then start thinking about, through this, what are the opportunities and how can we start co-creating what the new normal is going to look like? Does it feel to you, because it certainly feels talking to you, that for everybody listening to this, there will be a way in which this could be a period of creative turmoil as well as Absolutely. Uh, as well as a traumatic turmoil. And that actually we may discover whether whether it's by learning how to filter out the white noise and the, and the fake news from the signal or learning how mm -hmm. to ask for advice or 
or finding new resourceful ways to approach problems that we may discover we are more than we thought we were. Absolutely. And I mean, if there's one thing that is certain, um, you know, things will always change. Um, and, and that is, you know, this is one huge crisis um, and it probably won't be the last. And I think pretty much it's, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity for learning how we actually cope how we respond, how we find new ideas. You know, um, you know when, we were, when we were children, um, nothing was more of a motivator than boredom. You know, you didn't have a screen to turn to. You didn't have solutions. You had to be imaginative and you had to be creative. Um, I'm sitting personally with a very real, um, you know, situation where my my son, who's just graduated um, from university, um, is is now looking for, for work <laughs> in the middle of a coronavirus uh, pandemic. And I'm using this as one small sort of silly example, but it really is um, uh, true for me right now. And I'm sure true for, for many people is that, you know, he's now taken to online tutoring. You know, you it's incredible when we put under pressure or when we put in what is a totally unique um, situation and unique to us because it's a first um, mm-hmm. in our lifetimes, that actually it's a stimulus for creativity and for opportunity. And it's just about... Um, unlocking those potentials. Leadership coach Lani Carstens there, talking to Tomorrow Comes Today from Cape Town in South Africa. Now, Lani mentioned, Rob, this the idea that, that people often look to her for answers and definitive absolutes and what will happen now. And, and, and again, coming back to this part about wanting certainty. And, and obviously, she's very keen to sort of say to them, look, We'll, we'll talk and we'll work we'll work out possible scenarios and the answer will come from you. Is that something I suppose that would be a good skill for people to try and cultivate as we move forward? This idea that they're not looking for necessarily uh, tips here or a thing that's going to happen there or ha- sort me out with this, but but perhaps embedding a set of core principles in themselves or core ways of working or core thresholds for decision making with investments. That, that can then serve them going forward and, and where the answer has come from within, I suppose, as to what they should do next. Yeah, so, so absolutely. And I mean, earlier you asked me, uh, you know, about sort of financial advisors and, and and all the rest. And I suppose she was talking about the response to crisis, you know, fight, flight, mm. fright, uh, or, or freeze. And I'm guessing, you know, most people when it comes to their investments, their prices, their pensions, they're probably experiencing one of those. Yeah. You know, what, one of the things that, that, that we're seeing our, you know, advisors do is, is, is a, you know, the importance of keeping in touch with clients and, hey, Matt, I'm thinking of you. And, yeah. and really to start the conversation with empathy. I mean, it's so easy to just dive into the facts and it's important to get to the facts. But as I say, to kind of meet you to give you like that kind of virtual hug and just say hey matt it's okay i know you know seeing your pension go down by 15 percent must must be pretty horrible and the, the the second thing and this is the hard the really hard thing is to just give that space uh and that that space before you dive in and i think it was victor frankel said between stimulus and response there is a space in that space is our power to choose our response in our response lies our growth and our freedom and i think lani talked about response versus react and i think that's really important so let me kind of give you that empathetic hug and then let me give you that space to really sort of help you think about how you respond so i think on on closing finally we know that 
you know, the world has climbed up a tree and, and appears to be sort of uh, worried about the immediate, um, the immediate problem. And then we know that we're all facing forwards now, I suppose, and looking at what comes next. And the conversations are beginning about at what point lockdown may finish, at what point we'll move on, what does happen to the economy, what happens. There are all these discussions about furloughing as opposed to uh, making people redundant simply because when things bounce back, it would be great to be able to be fully staffed already and be able to take charge of that and so on. It, it feels like certainly in comparison to 2008, everybody is just focusing on the, the, the slightly longer term and that we still haven't lost touch with that. Is that is it, are there any parting words of wisdom, I suppose, for people sitting at home thinking, well, I'm maybe closer to retirement and look what's happened to the pensions and what should they do? Who well, who are they going to call? Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, actually, just linking back to the the previous point, one of, one of my kind of guiding mantras is from a, a book by Stephen Covey, uh, which is kind of begin with the end in mind. And I think beginning with the end in mind is such a kind of powerful frame. I think we all need frames by which to look at it, and that forces me to to, to link to think long term. Look, the, the the reality is if and. See, right now, everyone's worried about COVID-19, getting it, the fact that the mortality rate is way higher for people in their 70s than in their 60s and 50s and 40s. So that in mind, but what we have seen over the last 100 years is that people's life expectancy has increased enormously right over the last 50, 50, 50 years. So if you've just come up into retirement uh, and and you're healthy, I would again go back and go. What's your plan? You know, how how long do you need this income from? What what do you do? Want you know, if if you know, when you confront the reality of your death, which will happen at some point, what do you do, want to do with your money? Are you happy to kind of run your money down, or do you want to pass that on to your to your family or to your estate or or gift it away? So, what's your legacy? Look, now's a great time to ask these questions and probably now people have more time to jump on a on a on a call with their financial advisor and ask these questions so you know one of the things i know speaking to my colleagues is that their clients who are normally really hard to get hold of because they're busy at work and all of the rest are probably a really grateful for that call how are you doing matt you know it's okay uh and actually now's a great time to reconnect and go matt what you know what are you thinking about what are you doing if this then that and then i can play it back to you and I, we can scenario analysis together. I can jump in the cockpit next to you and we can come up with a new plan. Words of wisdom there from Rob Gardner, Director of Investment at St. James's Place. I'm Matt Potter. Today's been brought to you by Sarah Berksoy, producer, Nathan Copeland, producer, Chris Murray and James Headley, assistant producers. I'm Matt Potter. Thanks for coming. This was Tomorrow Comes Today. Today.